Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019-2020, Lecture 35. Introductory lecture on Dante's Paradiso, Cantos 21-22, The Sphere of Saturn, and nothing. These are slides 212 to 236. Let's begin. Beatrice becomes so beautiful that if she were to smile, Dante would explode. So again, recall this constant theme that when we transition from one sphere of heaven to another, we don't necessarily do so physically, but it's always indicated by Dante's vision becoming clearer and something becoming more beautiful to him. The more beautiful thing is Beatrice. She continues to change as he goes from sphere to sphere and becomes more beautiful. And the question I had put to you um, that we had thought about a little bit during seminar was, is it the case that heaven is changing as Dante ascends from sphere to sphere, or is Dante changing? Is his vision clearing up? Was he blind, and now he can see, as uh, the song or the narrator in Amazing Grace uh, says? And in fact, we have here in this tercet, uh, in the first 12 lines, this is obviously his three lines, and she did not smile. But if I smiled, she began, you would become as was simile. When she was turned to ashes. So this is again one of those little information uh, modules or nuggets I told you you need to understand in order to get what's being said. Simile. Simile was a human woman who was a, uh, who uh, Zeus, Jupiter, unfaithfully impregnated. Um, uh, even though he was obviously married to Hera. Now Hera then in disguise gets Simile to ask Zeus to reveal himself in all his glory to her. And I want you to to uh, note that expression in all his glory. And uh, she makes this promise. She says, grant me a favor. Grant me a promise. And he says anything. And she says, okay, let me see you in all your glory. And he says, oh, what a foolish thing I've done allowing you to uh, make a promise or uh, to, to ask a promise of me uh, that would end up in your destruction. And so he reveals himself to her. And he is so much so beautiful that she literally explodes while pregnant with their son. Zeus then, in an act of great mythological anatomizing, uh, grabs his exploded son out from the air, and opens his thigh, and sews his son into his thigh. His son is then born later on from his thigh, and is called Dionysus. And interestingly enough, Simile was immortal. Zeus is a god. Usually when a god couples with a mortal, definitely she gets pregnant, always. But usually the woman has a mortal son. Think of Achilles, son of Thetis. Think of Heracles, son of also Zeus. Um, but Dionysus actually becomes a god. The idea being here that there is so much glory of God in this sphere that were we to see it as it truly is rather than as we see it, or rather if Dante were to, he would explode. So if Beatrice were to even just smile at him, she would become so beautiful that he would be overwhelmed with, uh, uh, I don't know, explosion. He would explode. Um, it's just too much for him. And so this is a place that's so pleasant that it literally makes him want to explode. Uh, very interesting. And that's, uh, that's how we enter Saturn. In any case, we have risen up to the seventh splendor, which under the breast of the blazing lion, that's the constellation Leo, now sends its beams down mixed with its virtue. The color of gold, so we're getting quite near the top, with refulgent rays, I saw a ladder which was erected aloft so far, my sight could not follow it. And again, recall that constant theme of the ineffable. It goes, justice of God goes so deep that we cannot see it, our eye cannot follow it. Well, this ladder apparently goes so high that our eyes cannot follow it. It's trying to say that there's a lot that we can't see, so we should focus on what we can see. Um, I saw two coming down the steps, so many splendors, those are souls. I thought all the stars which shine in heaven were pouring down there. 
it looks like a meteor shower to him. I don't know if you've ever uh, known about a meteor shower, shower and had a clear night and gotten to like go onto a mountain and watch it. It's spectacular watching uh, stars move across the sky. That's what he witnesses here. I imagine it's sort of like the, uh, it's too slow for that, but uh, if you uh, watch you know, those, those fireworks that shoot into the air that slowly sort of glitter down. Uh, similar idea, but they're too slow to really represent a meteor shower. In any case, uh, very famously, too, uh, this, this ladder, it exists in two places in literature um, that are sort of source places. In Plato, he has in his symposium a description of a ladder that joins um, earth to heaven. Socrates describes this. But also this patriarch Jacob, who we've heard so much about, who had uh, the brother, uh, or who was brother of Esau and fought against an angel. Well, he, he once had a dream in which there was a very famous ladder connecting earth to heaven. And so something about this sphere is going to teach us about what connects earth to heaven. Um, and uh, perhaps that will be a symbol, and I can assure you that we will uh, allegorically interpret this. All right, let's get some facts, though, before we get into the depths that are so difficult to see, or the heights in this case. Jupiter has the depths, Saturn has the heights. This is sphere 7 out of 10 of heaven. And notice that significant number 7. 7 means that it is the final sphere that has a single virtue. And that single virtue is, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll have to leave that to you to think out for me. It is obviously a cardinal virtue. Let's see. If the first uh, uh, um, cardinal virtue sphere was 4, the sun, that was prudence. And then we saw the martial Martians. Those uh, have fortitude. Obviously, justice is the Jupiter one. This is the sphere of moderation. Here we find those who are called contemplatives. They are deep thinkers. They think about deep things with their, uh, their days. And I, I will make the connection between them and university uh, professors soon enough who are sort of our version, uh, or not even sort of, they are our version of the contemplatives these days in their monasteries, which we call universities. Uh, and often publicly fine. Liberal art. The liberal art of this sphere is astronomy. Astronomy is the art of measuring the distance is between interstellar objects or stars. Just as geometry is the art of measuring the Earth. And so this is a sphere, astronomy allegorically understood. It's a way of measuring thoughts, things that are in heaven. As if heaven were your mind and what your mind were populated with or thoughts, or ratios between things which are real, uh, which is how you, as a human, who are embodied physically, can understand, say, gravity, which is a disembodied um, principle of the universe that has never changed. Uh, and you can understand that, even though you are the sort of creature that certainly has a beginning and has an end, unlike gravity, uh, which is uh, quite odd. Well, in the theme, discovering wisdom or information, and then sharing information. You go up the ladder, you see what's on the roof, you come back down from the ladder, you share what's on the roof. This is a, a direct connection to uh, a writer that, uh, that Dante didn't even get to read. This is very similar to the idea of the cave. You're staring at the wall, you see falsities that are put in front of you, and then you leave the cave, you see some new information, you come back in with that new information, upset people's expectations, they laugh at you, and perhaps they uh, put you to death. Well, it's the same very idea here. When you discover something new and you come back, you're like sort of crazy old Maurice from Beauty and the Beast. He sees a beast, and he says, there's a beast. And uh, everybody, Gaston included, says, oh, crazy old Maurice, you need to go. You need to go be impounded uh, like a car. You need to go to the crazy asylum. 
asylum. And well, that's uh, sort of the risk that you have when you want to go do something new. I mean, think of Christopher Columbus. You'll fall off the edge of the world. And uh, when you do new, unique things, often people think you're crazy. Having done one myself, uh, I was first around when CrossFit first came around. People were like, you're going to injure your organs. You're going you're gonna to break yourself. And it's like, well, now CrossFitters are objectively the most incredible athletes ever to have existed in this world. And so it's like, well, sometimes you take a risk and sometimes it pays off. Let's keep moving. The shape of Saturn. Now, recall that the last four spheres have had shapes. We had intersecting or rather interlocked circles in the sun. We had a cross, a holy cross of Jesus in the middle, made up in Mars. We had an eagle that spoke to us. It said I, but it meant we um, in Jupiter. And now we have this golden refulgent ladder up and down which souls are going. This seems to be sort of a metaphor for how a contemplative, someone who thinks, and notice that word temple in contemplative, and notice also that you physically have temples that are on the side of your head, indicating that the holiest part of your body is obviously uh, which organ? Your brain, the one with which you think. Yes, and that's obviously why the temples are called temples. Uh, if you could find a different reason, that'd be interesting too, but I, I think that's quite right. In any case, these contemplatives, they gather and then they disseminate information. You've got to read the book, and then you have to be able to express what you have read. But we need to make sure to read the book first. And so the main speakers here will be Peter Damien. Notice that name, Peter, again. We're seeing Peter over and over again. We're going to see actual, uh, the actual Apostle Peter in the fixed stars in uh, Spear 8. And he will have quite the uh, low, abased opinion of Pope Benedict. He will, in fact, say of him, that he has turned his crypt into a sewer full of blood and filth, which is a fairly uh, damaging thing to say. And then we will also see St. Benedict, um, who was himself a member of a mendicant order, uh, a, a monastic sort. All right, and so Beatrice became more lovely, so lovely that Dante would explode. Dante then sees a ladder all in gold, and a soul approaches brightly, so brightly that it's hard for Dante to see. It's sort of like when a ray of sun hits you in the eyes, and you're like, oh, I can't see. They're like purple spots in my eyes. I should turn away right now. And the soul is so bright that Dante can't make it out. And uh, this seems to be uh, also a symbol for, like, when your intellect is not yet ready to understand something fully. When somebody says something to you, and it's a little bit shocking to you, not in, in an emotional way so much as uh, a stupor-inducing way. Someone says something so smart that you just can't comprehend what's come out of their mouth. It probably makes sense. But uh, who are you to judge because you don't understand it? And that's where Dante is at this moment. He needs things to be cleared up for him. And notice that language of clearing things up, that language of enlightening when you are learning things. It's almost like you're getting rid of the impediments to your own knowledge when you are doing that, clearing up the relationships between things. In any case, Dante questions him. Why is this sphere silent, he says. I've been treated to quite beautiful music here in heaven, and often you see heaven in art represented, they're like little cherubim playing little uh, harps and lyres, and uh, Peter Damien responds, and again we're going to see this topos over and over again, that you're a human, you're a human, you're a human. The problem with you is, you're a human, you're in heaven, where you're supposed to be a pure soul, and yet you're still sort of uh, bound by your human faculties. Even though you're not bound by your body here in heaven, you're bound by your mental limits. Um, you just cannot see like how God or souls see because you are an embodied creature that sees in a specific way. And so he says, you have mortal hearing, as you have mortal sight. He answered me, so here is no singing for the same reason that Beatrice has not smiled. It would overwhelm you. It would be too much for you. You would not understand it. You might explode even like Simile did. So it's probably for the best that you don't hear the singing here. All right. And then the Spirit says, I was not determined or predestined to come speak to you. 
and this will get into the lesson of this sphere, I chose to speak to Dante. And so this is very interesting, because um, uh, a question that we will uh, wonder about later is, do angels have memories? Do they have willpower? Do they have intellects? And the answer will be that they don't have memory, but they do have willpower, but it always accords with the absolute will, because they can always look at God, and therefore are always in perfect conjunction with him. Um, but apparently these souls in heaven, though they always act correctly, have no sin because they have no root of sin, which is the body, uh, they do get to make their choices. So each soul that is spoken to Dante was not forced to speak to Dante by God or some angel. They've all chosen freely in order to increase Dante's happiness and out of their own charitable spirits. They choose out of charity to do what they have done, and so therefore they still have freedom of choice, even though their individuality is very much questionable in heaven. Uh, recall the metaphor that Glaucus said that he became one with the ocean. Well, if you become one with something, you lose your differentiation. You lose your body. What determines uh, where you end and someone else begins in a place without space? A place without time? Well, that's entirely undefined. Perhaps here, there's a place of pure, free choice, of pure, good choices being made, which is a concept which is hard for me even to wrap my, my, uh, my circumspect mind around. In any case, Dante responds. But this is what seems hard to understand. Oh, we're finally getting to the hard questions. Why it was you, of all your companions here, there are all these spirits coming up and down, who alone was predestined to perform this office. That's sort of like a funny question that Dante's asking there. He says, why are you predestined? He doesn't seem to get the idea that uh, these souls uh, make their own choices. In any case, Peter Damien explains that he sees the divine light in proportion to his own sight. I want us to pause on that for a second. He explains that he sees the divine light, let's understand that to be truth, in proportion to his own sight. Well, this begins to give us an answer to the question that we posed at the beginning of the lecture. What is it that, uh, what is it heaven that continues to change? in front of Dante, or is it Dante's perspective that continues to be shaped by heaven and therefore continues to change? Peter Damien says that what he sees, he sees in accordance with his ability to see. Therefore, what you see, you see in accordance with your ability. Therefore, what Dante sees in heaven, he sees in accordance with his ability. Things are literally clearing up for him. He is seeing heaven uh, as he sees heaven. And so if you were to ask an idea or a question in seminar, would heaven look different to each and every person? The answer is almost clearly what? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so, to some extent, you have the ability, according to Dante, to define your own vision of heaven. And so not even that is predetermined. In any case, Peter's scene of the divine light in proportion to his sight raises him above himself. I really like that expression. The idea being, if divine light is truth or information, the more that you acquire, the more you better yourself. The more you uh, raise yourself up from your sort of animal nature, the more um, uh, extrinsic value you tie to your intrinsic nature. Hmm. But then even this, but even the highest angel could not explain the mystery of free choice in relation to predestination to Dante. So predestination, remember, having a destiny, how does that work with free will? We first engaged with this question really, really truly when Cacciaguida told Dante about his exile and told him that he could not stop his exile. And then we made the connection too to um, uh, Circle 8, Subcircle 3 of Simony, where um, we were told that Pope Boniface was already fated 
to go down amongst the Simonists, those who sell religious artifacts. And so we've really been struggling with how can you have free choice and yet still have a destiny? And even Dante shows in his language, he says, why were you predestined to come talk to me? And Peter Damien responds, well, it wasn't my destiny. I chose out of charity to come talk to you. So again, we have a development along this line, this crucial line. And so, uh, and yet again, I will say again, the response here touches on the topos, the ineffability topo, topos that has been so annoying to us lately. Just as we've heard that the justice of God is too deep and that this ladder of contemplation goes too high for our eyes to follow, here again, we, we have a very similar sort of response. The thing you ask is so deep uh -oh, that it is cut off from all created. That means mortal sight. We're not going to get an answer to this question. It is uh, what, what we're being told. And when I was a younger scholar, I was upset by these answers. I thought that it was like Dante like gets us to the top of heaven just to tell us that we can't know certain things. But I think there's a reason for it. I don't think it's because he could not come up with a clever response and is just giving up. I think the reason is that, um, uh, very much like what we talked about in seminar, is that there are certain questions that are very difficult, and you can show that you are very smart by attempting to answer them, but since you cannot know the truth, they are not very valuable questions. Perhaps if you were like a Solomon, instead of using your mind to show how clever you are, you can use it to actually administer to your specific duties in your life. If you can't understand the relationship between predestination and free will, maybe you should act charitably towards the people who are in your actual life right now. Perhaps your mind is not supposed to be used to understand things 10,000 miles away from you, but to understand the things that are actually right in front of you, which you understand. Uh, not probably as well as you think you understand them. I mean, even yourself, you can do things. Do you make yourself grow? No. How does that work? You don't know, and yet you just allow yourself to do it and wonder about, uh, you know, what the next episode of this or that is going to be. And it's like, you don't need to wonder about that. The next episode will come and you won't create it, but how, how you... Uh, uh, grow and then degenerate is probably something deeply relevant to you, seeing as uh, you are the one that will someday uh, decay. And in any case, we are told not even to consider this question, because apparently there are more important questions. Again, this is the topos of certain questions being irrelevant, like with Solomon, like with the predestination question in Mars, like with the question of the, um, the justice of the divine in Jupiter. Again, there are better questions that we can ask. The mind which is light here on earth, is smoke. Consider, therefore, how below it could achieve what it could not do when heaven takes it up. So uh, Peter Damon says, we don't even know. We don't even know as souls in the top heaven we're the smartest souls ever to have existed. We exist in the sphere with all the smartest people, and we don't know. But you down in heaven, you've got a body. It's very difficult for you to see the truth. And uh, so how can you possibly understand something that we can't? Uh, the answer is you, we can't. So Dante just gives up the question, and I think it's sort of surly of him. He says, okay, well, if you can't explain that very difficult concept to me, can you just tell me who you are? Perhaps you can just tell me who you are. And perhaps that's very significant, too, because uh, perhaps you're the sort of person that's like, I'm going to figure out what God is, and I'm going to look at every religious tradition and everything that's ever been said, and I'm going to figure it out. And it's like, okay, that's really cool. But perhaps even more interesting than that would be figuring out who you are or who the person in front of you right now is or who your best friend is? Do you really understand yourself or your surroundings so well that there's nothing to learn from them? Undoubtedly not. In any case, he answers using circumlocution. Peter Damien does. But eventually says, in that place, earth, I was known as Peter Damien. And remember also, Peter Petrus means rock in 
Greek, and uh, that uh, the Apostle Peter, different from this Peter, was the rock on which the church was founded. Uh, Peter, the betrayer, who was also violent, who cut off uh, uh, a guy's ear at some point, and so, you know, that's sort of the human nature on which everything we do is based. It's not the most, uh, uh, um, uh, you shouldn't, <laughs> you should trust it to be what it is, not to be what it is, is the idea. And also notice that Damien ending too, that comes from uh, Daimonion. In Greek, and so it's like he's like Peter's spirit. Uh, the word demon, in fact, comes from daimonion. The Greek spirits were turned into demons that would then occupy hell by the Christian tradition in, in an effort to take uh, what was a sort of a, a polytheistic religion and turn it into a um, monotheistic religion, which is why there's still sort of like angels, which are like gods in uh, the Christian idea of heaven, as well as saints in that idea. Those are sort of like demigods slash uh, minor gods in the tradition. There are very few other ways to argue it. In any case, he tells us a little bit about himself. He was lean with faith. So apparently he was not gluttonous, like uh, so many of the religious gluttons that we have seen. But modern pastors, uh-oh, so we're seeing this uh, con uh, contradiction or contrast uh, between olden times and newen times. Again, uh, modern pastors have grown fat with wealth. Okay, so they've been enriching themselves due to their position. Well, that's not the idea of being a pastor. The idea of being a pastor, at least for, for this guy, is that uh, you deny yourself the goods of the world. You don't have all the nice food, all the nice homes, all the nice clothes, all the nice things that you can potentially pursue and spend your time pursuing. His idea being that he could in some way be free of desire for these things, free to contemplate God instead of caring about these things. And I think to some extent, there is still that idea. Occasionally you find like a teacher or a professor who's extremely well-dressed, but the idea, when you think of a teacher or a professor, is not that they're extremely well-dressed. Not that they have a very nice car. Not that they do their hair very well. Kind of that their hair is kind of crazy, and that they're like thinking about weird things. The idea is that they want to be free of uh, those desires in order to think. They like to think about things, and they think things true, eh, through. And I, in fact, I saw uh, a movie this weekend, Sonic the Hedgehog, and the representation of the intelligent person is uh, someone who doesn't have any social skills. He's essentially autistic. His name is Dr. Robotnik. He doesn't know how to act around people. So I suppose he's uh, free of such concerns as having friends. Uh, too bad for him. In any case, when they cloak their horses under them, there stand two beasts. <laughs> I like that. The idea being that modern uh, uh, pastors are no better than animals, that they take from those they're supposed to defend. And that is sort of the idea behind an animal, though there are good animals like dogs that are loyal to their packs. Uh, are you better than an animal if you hurt your own pack? You hurt the people that support and protect you, that uh, uh, have some care for you, that love you. If you hurt them and strike them, people who are part of your own territory, are you any better than an animal? Or are you much worse uh, because you're human? In any case, the other souls roar in agreement, and so they've made sound. And because they've made sound, remember what we heard, that if they were going to be singing, Dante would explode. Apparently this sound is just small enough to where Dante faints instead of explodes. Nor could I understand it, the roar flattened me. That means put him to the ground, made him flat to the ground. Dante appears to faint. All right, Canto 22. Dante wakes up, looks to Beatrice, and she explains, if the song would kill you, make you explode, it makes sense that the roar would make you faint. Talk to others now. And then the greatest and the most luminous soul uh, uh, approaches Dante. And so that's, uh, that's probably who we want to talk to, the brightest soul amongst there, among there. He probably has the greatest information to share with us or the amount or value of information. He then reads Dante's mind, suggesting potentially that he is a part 
of Dante's mind, or that Dante's mind is currently linked to the mind of God, and that they are one, like Glaucus, with the sea, as I mentioned earlier. And this is St. Benedict, founder of the Benedictine order of monks, very similar to uh, St. Francis, therefore, and St. Dominic as well. Um, he fled from Rome, the city, due to its corruption, and actually converted people on Mount Casino. It makes me think a lot of it about like a positive version of the Grinch. The Grinch, obviously, first uh, ran away from Whoville, at least in the Jim Carrey version, because of the greed of the Who's during Christmas. They weren't very, feeling very charitable, and they made fun of him. And then he actually runs away from the city, and then creates a home on a mountain, where he then converts a dog named Max to his evil designs. Well, uh, sort of similar to that here, we have St. Benedict, who flees from Rome because it's too corrupt, and then lives on a mountain like a sage. It's interesting in the East and the West, you imagine sages as being on the mountain. Maybe a long white beard teaches you some martial art. If you're thinking about the East, uh, perhaps uh, has a funny stick in his hand like a shepherd's crook. And uh, also has a long white beard in, uh, in uh, uh, the Western tradition. Hmm. There are other contemplatives here, only two of which you need to know that are spoken about. One is Macarius, the so-called Macarius the Younger was the founder of Eastern monasticism, that means uh, monks in Asia, uh, monks in uh, mostly uh, the Middle Eastern uh, part of Asia. That would be uh, like the Arab countries as well as places like Israel and Jerusalem. Um, Romualdus, uh, including Turkey as well, where uh, Troy was, and Constantinople. Romualdus de Leonesti, who was the founder of a monastery in Camaldolian. So we're seeing over and over again these people who are contemplatives are monks. And recall what it is that a monk does. They live in a home. They wear the same clothes every day. They often eat at the same time every day. They often eat the same foods every day, depending on uh, what sort of month they happen to be. There are quite a bit of... Uh, there, I think every calendar day is some sort of specific saint's day for Catholics. If you really follow it closely, there are different things you can do every single day. I think, uh, I think in the Jewish religion they have a calendar sort of based on that too, but I think it's lunar in, 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 in nature, which is why so many of the Jewish holidays change days. Um, uh, year to year. In any case, in any case, the contemplatives, they favor monasteries because there they are removed from the cares of the world. They can literally sit around with each other and have seminar and think about God or what God is, if that's the sort of thing they're interested in, or what justice is, or what truth is. And uh, we do, to this day, still have people like that, if there are people like that, and they exist in universities. And in fact, University professors who have who are on tenure track or have tenure are often even offered what's called a sabbatical. A sabbatical is a semester or a year where they are allowed to just sit and think as much as they want, and then often they have to produce something based on that, like a book. So they are allowed to go up the ladder at their leisure, and then to come back down and bring something to us. And that's something that's literally done by people. We will pay them, or their university will pay them, and we will pay their university through our tax dollars to uh, think up something new. And uh, perhaps you could do that someday uh, with your lives. Uh, that's something I, I'll be doing very soon myself. And so, in any case, another question from Dante to Benedict. I pray you, Father, again, calling him Father, putting him in this role of teacher above him, just like Cachaguita, just like Anchises to Aeneas, just like Aeneas to the uh, Trojan and then the Roman people. I pray you, Father, to satisfy me as to whether I am to obtain so much grace as to see your likeness without concealment. Now, that's a fantastic question. This is a much more personal question to Dante. He says, right now, you're like sort of like a light that hurts my eyes, which means you're too much for me to see. My eyes are yet, not yet clear enough or strong enough to see you. Will I, by means of learning, continue to clear up my vision well enough 
to where I'll actually be able to see you for what you are, not just this kind of shining, eye-hurting light. Great question. Will I be able to see you fully? And uh, recall also that we're probably expecting an answer similar to uh, the justice, justice of the divine or the height of the ladder of contemplation. Probably the answer is going to be no. But let's see what it actually is. Oh, yes. And I give you those examples. Recall the justice of the divine. Uh, and this is from Jupiter. And so from uh, book, or sorry, Cantos 19, 58-63. And so in the sin of eternal justice, the understanding you have of the world loses itself as the eye does in the sea. For although near the shore, it sees the bottom, in the open sea, it does not. Nonetheless, the bottom is there, although the depths hide it. Which I also think is a very clever metaphor, because remember, Dante said, remember to keep your little skiff close to mine, or turn back, because we're going out on the open waters. Or we're literally, well, literarily, metaphorically, out on the waters with Dante. Now, not literally. You remember how I told you everybody was literally wrong? Uh, even I do at times. And then, the height of the ladder is described... The color of gold with refulgent rays. I saw a ladder which was erected aloft. So far my sight could not follow it. So loses itself as the eye does in the sea. So far my sight could not follow it. And yet, what does Benedict have to say to us? Brother, as if Dante is himself a part of his monastery. As if Dante is himself a contemplative monk. Your exalted desire, that means good desire, uh, high desire, will be accomplished in the final sphere where all, including mine, will be so. Okay, okay. So Dante will get to where he's going, and he will be able to see things clearly. Uh, and uh, supposedly, insofar as he can communicate that to us, so will we. There is perfection, ripeness, wholeness for every wish. Notice the contrast between that and, like, say, a rotten fruit or a bad apple, which is uh, like the idea of a human who is corrupted. Here we have the humans that uh, essentially reach their peak, reach uh, what they're supposed to be, and then I, I suppose are eaten by the mind of God. Uh, for every wish, for there and there alone, every part is where it always was. Because it was not in space, nor has it holes. Uh, there's no space or time. And our ladder stretches into it so that it disappears from your sight. Okay, so what, what, what does this response mean? So first and foremost, notice that he calls, uh, uh, St. Benedict calls Dante brother. As if Dante were a monk of a monastic order. As if what he is doing right now is contemplating, like a monk does, which is uh, precisely what he's doing. There is perfection, rightness, wholeness for your every wish, for there and there alone every part is where it always was. The Empyrean is the name for Sphere 10. Notice that pyre in the middle, like purgatory, that word for fire. This means <coughs> inside fire, essentially. Uh, the Empyrean is the, uh, is the name for the mind of God which comprises and exists outside all space and time. It contains within it all that has happened, is happening, and will happen. And so, uh, I suppose if you really want to think technically, philosophically about it, it is not subject to space and time, but rather it subjects all that exists within it to space and time. It is, in a way, the source of all space and time. Technically, the prima mobile, which still partakes of space and time, will be the direct source, but I, I, I just don't understand how, uh, how the Empyrean itself could not then be the uh, sort of intellectual source. I think it is as a final cause. I'll explain what that means in Aristotelian terms. Uh, when we get there, uh, when we get there. In any case, because it is not in space, nor has it poles, because it is infinite, and our ladder stretches into it so that it disappears from your sight, the Empyrean, like I was saying, exists outside of, and make uh, sure that you note this, of space and time. So the answer is yes, but not yet. A very teacher answer there. Yes, 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 you will be able to see things all very clearly, but not quite yet. We're still uh, taking the steps along the journey. We are not at the end of the journey. It is at the end of the journey that you will turn around and see all that you have done. 
If all you do is stop in the middle of it, then you'll simply slow down your journey. So it's best that you, like a soul in purgatory, never turn, not turn back in the middle of things, but to get where you're going, and then consider holistically what it is that you have done. And I would say that with, uh, this is why you should not have your cell phone in your pocket when you do uh, work. It tears you out of your moment of focus. You focus on something else, then you might say, oh, I'm kind of bored with what I'm doing. I'd rather do this other thing. It's like, well, that's obvious, but you need to get what you're doing done. You need to maintain your focus. In any case, Benedict then continues on to highlight thievery, usury. Remember that usury is uh, lending money at exorbitant rates of uh, interest, sort of like payday loans, places that you see all around here. Um, and he talks also about the corruption of the current Benedictine order. Very typical. Florence is corrupt. The Catholics are corrupt. The Guelphs and the Ghibellines are corrupt. The papacy is corrupt. The kings, the French kings are corrupt. Uh, again and again, we're seeing that things that start pure and beautiful do not stay pure and beautiful in this world. Which is why so many adults that treat you so well when you are young students and kids will uh, perhaps turn up their noses at you when you are some, uh, some adult, regardless of uh, whether you are uh, uh, terrible or wonderful in their own estimation. So, the flesh of mortals is so susceptible that down there a good beginning does not last from the oak's first leaf to when it bears an acorn. So you can't even get through a normal span of life without corrupting yourself because of your poor choices, is what Benedictine says of, of, we, of us who are humans. Peter, this is the Apostle Peter, not Peter Damon, began without gold and without silver. Didn't have any money. Opposite of the donation of Constantine here. And I, St. Benedict, with nothing but prayer and fasting, which is, prayer and fasting is like, uh, you know, straight up nothing. Like, fasting is the absence of food. Prayer is sort of the, uh, I suppose it's the presence of hope, but nothing more. And then Francis, humbly, with his community. These people started with very little. There was something that they had, though, that magnetized, galvanized people, that drew people to them. It's like they had some sort of gravity within themselves. And so Peter, he founded the Catholic Church. But now look at the Catholic Church under the stewardship of Pope Boniface VIII. Corrupt. Benedict founded the Benedictine Order. Now it's uh, accused of thievery and usury. Corrupt. Francis founded the Franciscan Order. And they're supposed to be poor. Well, now we have one of the richest cities in the world. It's called San Francisco. That's more of a modern, uh, modern idea there. San Francisco is obviously named for St. Francis. Um, and is literally has a golden gate, which is not made of gold, but it is called the golden gate. Um, but now the, even the Franciscans are, are corrupt. All these things that started with wonderful founders, with wonderful ideas, uh, being subjected to the world, being brought into the world, has in some way corrupted them. This is sort of an unfortunate idea of, say, like the Virgin Mary, or any woman that has a child. They will uh, be innocent as young people, but then they will learn about the world, and it will in some way corrupt them. This is also a sad idea about any intellectual idea you have. You want a beautiful book, you want to start a new school, you want to have a good idea, you implement it in the world, people act wrongly on it. They either destroy your school, or they, they hear your thoughts on being peaceful and they engage in war. They, uh, people misuse things for their own ends on this world, whether it be people, ideas, or uh, tools. Um, uh, and that is uh, one of the unfortunate aspects of freedom of the will, that people can misuse even the good things in this world, and that they uh, almost universally do. Um, and if you look at each of these beginnings, and then look again to see where they have got to, you will see that the white has turned black. That things turn opposite from their purpose. And a place that was a school, a place for learning, will become quite the opposite. And a place that is a gym, a place of physical excellence, will become quite the opposite. That a person who is 
destined for great things, will become often quite the opposite, um, depending on their own choices. And so I suppose this is also saying to make, your, make the best possible choices, because the easiest thing in the world to do is to corrupt yourself and to corrupt your environment, and uh, that is the opposite of what the human is capable of doing. In any case, we rise to the fixed stars. Never on Earth, where movements up and down occur naturally, was ever movement so rapid that it could be compared with my flight. So, <clears throat> he moves instantaneously. As I hope, ooh, hope, read of them. Notice that apostrophe there. To return to that devout triumph on account of which I often weep for my sins and beat my breast. So this is the, the writer who is now exiled talking to us about how he wishes he could make it back to heaven where he's uh, 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 guiding us through right now. You would not put your finger in a flame and draw it out again more speedily than I saw the sign after Taurus, that's the bull, and find, found myself there. In fact, we'll, we'll find ourselves in Gemini, the twins. Gemini means twins in uh, Latin. And the twins, Castor and Pollux, who were the brothers of Helen, who she thought she uh, didn't see in the Iliad Book 3 because they, uh, they, they didn't want to hear the insults said by the other soldiers. But the reason why she didn't see them is they had already been killed, um, sadly. O glorious stars, O light which is filled with immense power, from which I acknowledge all my genius. These are the fixed stars of Gemini, which supposedly make you intellectual and creative. Uh, you can still read that in ast astrology books if you want to. They have made great strides in the last 700 years, apparently. Rising with you and hiding myself with you. Again, that Glaucus sort of becoming one with something. Was he who is father of every mortal life when I first felt the air of Tuscany? That's essentially where... Dante was born in the Tuscan region, where Florence is. And then, when the grace was granted to me to enter the high circle in which you turn, it was in the quarter where you are. This is a, a temporal uh, analogy right there, telling us what time of day it happens to be. My soul now sighs devotedly to you, that it may be given the power for the hard passage, which is now before it, which is to relate to us what it was that he saw, which was so ineffable.